0: This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today, we're speaking to Wim Zwischenberg. He works for Pax for Peace and he concentrates on conflict and the environment, specifically trying to work out via field visits and research how to protect the environment when war is all around, infecting people, destroying things and making things a lot harder for people to live. As usual, if you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash popularfront. Or there are other ways, you can go to popularfront.co slash support. Uh, Please excuse my voice, I am unwell and sound like I've been smoking crack, but I haven't. I think the best thing, maybe you can describe what it is you actually do.
1: So I work for a, a Dutch peace organization called PAX. And the work we do is focused on peace building and conflict resolution. And around 10 years ago, um, our partners in in Iraq, we work with a lot of local partners in over 15 different conflict areas. They were raising concerns over the pollution caused by the war and the potential impact it had on their health, in particular, um, the plea uranium munitions that were used by the US. So we started looking into that and and traveling to southern Iraq and doing field research um, because there's a lot of... um, yeah, different kind of sources of information on this topic, especially around the EU. Um, They're like activists claiming it causes like a nuclear holocaust in the Middle East. And the other side, there's the US government saying there's no problem at all. So we, try, we were trying to find out like, what is the issue here? And um, in the course of our work, our field work in southern Iraq, we talk with Iraqi ministries, with like the mining agencies, with health experts, doctors, uh, communities that live by contaminated military scrap metal sites and we sort of you know came across other types of environmental pollution and impact that could have been linked with like health concerns from local communities and together with uh, the partners we were working with in in the uk um, we started to look at okay what is the wider impact of conflict on the environment and what are the implications for the health of, of people in the short term but also in the long term so that's part of the work we're doing at the moment and in the course of that work we we found out like hardly anyone is paying attention to to that so um to the environmental damage and pollution caused by conflicts and what are like the health risks for communities for the socio-economic impacts and yeah so we started to explore that and and there was it was very difficult in the beginning because as i said like no one is actually doing this kind of work uh, there's the un environment who um, um does post-conflict uh, environmental assessments, but often those are limited uh, because of funding issues or, or because of security issues or um, it, it's done too late. So they, they, for example, in Sierra Leone, it was conducted I think around five, six years after the conflict. So um, uh, in the meantime, people were still getting exposed to a range of um, pollution uh, sources. Um, so one of the issues we've come across is because nobody sort of paying attention to this, and uh, partly this was because if you talk about the environment, people think you're, you know, some kind of tree-hugging hippie uh, while you're talking about the environment in war, like when often you get comments like, what are you going to do, like separate garbage or something. And um, of course, like to some extent that is understandable, but it's also, it is sort of a low-hanging priority for a lot of organizations and governments until uh, people actually start complaining about um, you know, their health problems. And, and those complaints are, are result in, in conflicts with local authorities because their issues from local communities are not being addressed. You know, once your, your water is polluted, once your children are getting sick and you see all this stuff around you and you don't know where, what are, where it's coming from and who's gonna clean it up and what are the health effects are, of course people are getting concerned. So that's one thing and the other thing is also in the in the humanitarian sector so like a lot of humanitarian response organizations they've come across these issues as well so you know they when um states and in warfare they target um, critical infrastructure like you know water sewage facilities Water filtration plants. Um, that there's already an impact there as well because people don't have access to clean water, so there's polluted water, so there's outbreak of communicable diseases, um, which also impacts humanitarian response. And um, another example is that you know, uh, especially in in urban conflicts, there are um, a lot of uh, sites in or near- nearby urban areas, uh, factories, chemical plants. Um, once you target them, it also will. Re- Release uh, results in a release of a range of toxics and other hazardous chemicals, which can affect local population. If, if this not being addressed, a good case would be in Iraq, where the US targeted around forty sites in their air campaign in two thousand three, which UN Environment then had to identify and and um, uh, work with the Iraqi government to support remediation efforts. So, um, but yeah, so there's there, there was a, there's still a huge uh, gap in in collecting information on all the different uh, vectors and angles in conflicts how this can affect the environment and in result can affect the health of people so that's what we've been working on in the last couple of years on how to improve that
0: so give me an example of what you do when you do this field work you know because a lot of organizations that talk about this stuff don't really go and do anything anywhere i find a lot of the time they're kind of looking at data sets but you actually go out into the field and you see what's going on right like For example, you were telling me there's a situation in the Donbass, in Ukraine, because of the war and stuff like that. Yeah,
1: so it's it's a very good example. Those are very good examples of where you need to verify. So what we started to do, we started to use open source information because it's very difficult to... Get access to an area, especially when there, uh, when there's a hot conflict, and find out what's going on there. So that's the the work that has been done by by Bellingcat provides a lot of entry points for data collection. So we started doing that, like looking at open source databases from prior to the conflict, to satellite monitoring, to social media monitoring, and trying to cross verify. Okay, we know from Wikimapia that there's a there's a, uh, a chemical plant here, and then we look at uh, live UA map, and we see there has been shelling around this chemical plant. So what are the, what's kind of, and then we look at other tools to find out, okay, if this is a phenol factory, for example, what is phenol? What kind of, you know, how dangerous is it to human health? And this is an example from the Donbass. So we start to map all these sites in the Donbass where you have like major, um, um, uh, livestock facilities where they have like hundred thousand pigs and 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 hundred thousand uh chickens and they create a lot of like waste and they have like huge waste ponds where all these you know uh, basically all the excrements is, are being collected and the wastewater which is also mixed with a lot of um so you have love um um medications that in that's in there the animals are being fed or um um like other kinds of um pollutants are getting to the wastewater and those were on the front line so but it's difficult to tell that story so you want to show to people like why the environment why these environmental um tinder boxes are are relevant in to to monitor and identifying conflicts and in order to do that you know you have to go there and and show what situation looks like on the ground so that's why we went to to the donbass after we collected the information trying to talk with people with local communities and so for example i gave you the example of the phenol factory which is like literally on the front line in uh it's it's uh uh, north of uh, donetsk and what we saw there is there is a a major toxic waste pond um between the ukrainian army lines and the russian-backed separatist lines and they have been shelling um over to from both sides and at some point like they you know they had to intervene um or the international government the international community was sort of intervening saying hey if, if this goes wrong if the artillery shell hits the toxic waste pond you have three hundred thousand cubic liters of highly toxic waste flowing into the river making all groundwater use in a in the whole region uh, impossible
0: and how did, how did that end up there though? How did there end up being this toxic waste pond?
1: So there's a phenol factory nearby. So phenol was sort of uh, the byproduct from uh, uh, stone coal. So the Don the Donbass is you know in the Soviet time and even prior to that, like they started using ex- a lot of extraction of uh, coal um, for the for the industry, and the byproduct of the coal is is phenol, which is being used in all kind of It's highly flammable and it's being used in all kind of products in in, in uh, in, in paint and other kind of products, um, but there's the in the process of making the phenol You have also a waste product, which is also toxic, but you can't use it So they need to store that and then uh, it needs to be um, um, Processed in order to get rid of it in a safe way, but of course, you know the, the conflict uh, It was already there before the conflict, but uh, they still use the location to 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 safely store all the phenol waste um, water and um what you saw there is like the the ukrainian army dug in their trenches next to the toxic waste pond and when we went there and we talked with the ukrainian army like like, you know first of all the guy just came in and he didn't know there was a waste pond then because there was just a change of regiments uh coming in every like i think the change every couple of weeks and um the guy who just came in like had no idea there was one um so people are not informed about you know, what's actually on their front lines. Um, but then another guy who was there for a longer time came in and he started talking about this saying, well, yeah, uh, you know, if we put our trenches there, we know that the opposition are not going to fire at us because if they missed and, uh, and hit the waste pond, then they'll be fucked too. Basically boils down to that. Um, but on the other hand, they said, if we, if we don't do that, they'll, they, they will dig their trenches next to the waste pond because they know that we can't fire at them. So... You know it creates sort of uh a, a ukrainian standoff if you will you know it's like it's a highly um highly industrialized environment in the donbass you have all these soviet era um chemical factories there are a lot of uh, mines abandoned mines where um radioactive materials and other chemical materials is being stored and for example there's also a big issue in the donbass like the this, the, the waste they store all these radioactive materials and chemical materials in those mines but the pumping systems are often failing um so like naturally like groundwater is sipping into the mines and the groundwater is being pumped out of those those abandoned mines but now like the water infrastructure is failing so the mines are flooding so in worst case like all the radioactive and chemical materials are flooding out of the mines if, if it gets into the water and can contaminate the local area and this has been repeatedly been warned for. So that's also an impact of conflict where you know you have to deal with all this toxic and radioactive waste from decades ago um, and um, you have to do it in a sustainable way but you can't because you know everybody's fighting and there's like there's no governance or control on what's happening with those
0: sites. Yeah, and th- this might sound really weird, but it just occurred to me. I remember when uh, when I was in the Donbass last, and I think I was near Zaitsevo or somewhere near there, and I was like, "Hey, I need a piss." And them, you know, the separatists being the separatists, were like, "You can't piss over there, even though the whole place is wrecked." They were like, "You got to use the toilet." I was like, "Right, well, where's the toilet?" And they were like, "Over there." And so I walked over, and <laughs> like I-, I remember just kind of moving this bit of scrap metal that was kind of set up in this cabin kind of way and the toilet basically was just i don't know it was like a 10 20 foot hole dug really deep with just you can imagine you know everyone's going for a shit there piss everything now i know that's just human waste but i remember even then thinking like that cannot be good think how many front lines there are think how many trenches you know i mean do you think even that the soldiers themselves are going to end up polluting the ground like that
1: with human waste or human excrement like it's sort of it's it's um it's, I mean, you shouldn't fall into the waste pit. Let me put it that way. Um, um, but I think that's that's not that bad because you know you can also use human waste for, um, um, you know, to for, for as a fertilizer as well. It's being done. But if you have three hundred thousand liters of human waste stored somewhere and that's being hit, yeah, that's. Uh, you know there's a lot of ammonia a lot of methane in it that's naturally collected in, in me- that's also with the with the livestock as well there's a lot of ammonia in there which can if that gets released in in one you know in one flush then uh definitely it's not healthy for the for the local environment but Um, but also it it, it points out to another issue so um, for uh, treating human waste there is you know or or water filtration there's a lot of chlorine needed so um, in the case of uh, Donetsk you there was a lot of uh, um, discussion around and targeting of water filtration stations because um, a lot of chlorine was stored there so you see for you saw for example a couple of examples where the russian-backed separatists were firing at um, filtration sites storing like six thousand liters of chlorine which is used for water filtration or they put up artillery next to a larger site uh, where there was a lot of even more and on top of my head i'm not sure what it was like triple times amount of chlorine stored there um, and they know they the ukrainian army wouldn't fire back at them because if they missed and hit the chlor, the water filtration site then it would be like a major chemical incident um so those are just like a couple of examples but like yeah i've been in another issue with like lately i was in uh, in november in, in northeast syria so in syria we started mapping um the increase of artisanal refinery so for example after uh 2012 when the you know when the uh, revolution ended up in, in a violent conflict um a lot of engineers at the oil fields like fled their jobs or were killed or joined armed groups um still there was a high it was a big need for for oil and oil refining so uh, people living nearby in the villages they you know they started to buy the crude oil and start to refine them the crude oil themselves which in a in a makeshift refinery sort of backyard burners and this practice starts spreading all over northeast syria um, in the ne- in the following years, but those refineries are highly uh, ha- like hazardous the working sites. There are a lot of explosions. There's you know you're you're they're basically what what they do is they they start cooking crude oil and that sort of distill the crude oil through a small pipeline in a water basin and then you know the refined uh, product come out which might be benzene or uh, diesel and Yeah, and we started looking at the satellite images and start counting all those refineries over the course of the couple of years and there have been literally tens and tens of thousands of those refineries spreading to all over northeast Syria. And from anecdotal evidence we were getting from the ground was like a lot of children were working in those conditions. And so we wanted to see like how okay, how is this being dealt with? So in November we went to Asaka and in in the northeast Syria. It's in the Al Jazeera Canton, um, the Kurdish-controlled areas, also known as Rojava, and um, those issues were on the agenda there of the local uh, of the self-administration. And they closed down all the artisanal refineries uh, on a couple of lo- apart from a couple of locations, but they were struggling a lot because, like, we, we went to visit to revisit some of the sites that were still operational, and if you talk with villagers. Um, or people or people working at the site, they basically said like well we, we, you know we have no other sources of income so we have to work in those toxic uh, conditions um, because we have to provide for our families and agriculture doesn't provide us with enough um, income so you know we, we, that's why we start doing this. Um, and you know that's also a byproduct because uh, also in 2014 the US and the US-led coalition and the Russians start targeting oil refinery so you know there was no other way of refining uh, crude oil uh, and ISIS was making a lot of money from refining so to some extent it's understandable that you engage in these kind of military tactics but the unforeseen consequences was a major rise of uh, a toxic industry where thousands and thousands of civilians including a lot of children were working in uh, exposing them on a daily basis to like noxious fumes and 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 toxic substances and there there are horrifying images and videos available for from interviews where people tell them about their stories. so and we want to document that and show okay this is also it only it not only does it affect directly the health of those working in those refineries but it also in the long term create a lot of localized pollution so all the wastewater is going down in the local rivers Uh, people were complaining around that as well like local um water sources were not usable anymore or the quality was severely diminished so in the long term if you want to look at look at rehabilitation and reconstruction you know those environmental factors are going to be hugely important because if people don't if they can't return to an area because their local area is contaminated or because of the pollution it's it's difficult to uh, you know start your um, your life and and restructure your your socio-economic opportunities again then you know, it also takes away an opportunity for people to rebuild their lives after conflict. And in particular, in a world where I think, um, you know, there there are less natural resources. So having access to quality natural resources and a healthy environment is becoming more of an issue. And conflicts only lead to more destruction of, the, of those uh, s- scarcely resources we have left. So I think we shouldn't uh, we should like the environment deserves a high priority in understanding conflict dynamics
0: right and when you're out there do you suggest ways to help them i imagine there's not a lot you can really do you know all the way in syria so
1: in in yeah in the case of syria um so we we met with the local self-administration and uh that was kind of interesting because they were really happy when we raised the issues because they said like well no one uh, for us, it's a major issue. In the case of uh, Rojava, it's also difficult, uh, not difficult, but it's different because there's a lot of focus on ecology in the ideology of the uh, self-administration. And that's uh, that was helpful because they were quite happy that we addressed this because they felt like, yeah, no one's listening to us and nobody's understanding this while we're having major issues here. And also because the position of the, the, of the self-administration um, resulted in that they can't import it's difficult for them to import um, equipment or goods or expertise to, to to rebuild the oil industry, which is a uh, like a major source of income to them. And it's not necessarily that they want to have this big oil industry, but for them, it, they're dependent on it. But they can't do it in such a way that it's less um, polluting. So because of the blockade, so they can't get any equipment in from either from Iraq or from other parts of Syria. Um, and so that was an issue they were struggling with. Uh, they were also struggling with um, agriculture, which has been also like, you know, Hasakah is the, the breadbasket of Syria. And ISIS destroyed a lot of water infrastructure like irrigation, uh, pumping systems. And it's also difficult for them to import those kind of materials. So the land quality was um, diminishing. There has been a lot of deforestation. There were issues around waste, like, cities like Kamishli and smaller towns like uh, Derek and uh, Amude, like they, they also create a lot of like household waste. That's something you usually will not think about in conflicts, but like what do you do with that? So they don't have safe storage sites or a or landfill, safe landfills where you can put all that stuff. Uh, and that's something I that was struggling with as well. So right now we're trying to um, also, we're working with local partners in uh, Northeast Syria um, local organizations and they also address those issue with us and we're going to work with them to identify where the most critical issues are and do interviews with people and trying to highlight these concerns and also and then we collect those interviews and we collect those um, the surveys and we just dis- we uh, discuss the results with the local administration and we want to involve also international organizations and governments to demonstrate like this is an issue for for local communities. They want to rebuild their lives and their livelihoods and environmental concerns are are key to them. And it's also interesting to see in Iraq, a lot of youth groups in Iraq are now addressing the environmental issues. And um, so for example, um, in southern Iraq in Basra, you know, you had this massive wave of protests breaking out last summer um, because of the pollution from the water and yeah, people couldn't drink the water anymore, and they were getting sick.
0: Oh yeah, the fish <laughs> were dying and everything.
1: The background to that was it's it's multifactual background. So there's you know hydropolitics with Turkey, who are building dams. There's a severe drought, but it's also failure from the national government to fix the damaged water infrastructure. Um, there's the increased um, salinization because of the rising sea. Um, so that sort of all resulted in this sort of um, perfect storm in in Basra but um, that's where you can see like environmental conditions can also give room for political tensions between communities who are disgruntled with their lack of government action and they're getting sick and nobody's doing something about it because they can't drink their water anymore so if you don't address that then can result in in tensions and that's why also where we're seeing now in Iraq a lot of youth groups uh, like worldwide we see youth groups because it's about their future getting uh, standing up and then protesting and demanding action from governments to do something about this and that's something hopeful I see in the Middle East where a lot of young people are taking the streets or forming uh, activist groups or committees or organizing demonstrations to demand accountability from their governments to Address the environmental issues and especially water in the Middle East is going to be a huge thing. So um, that's something we we want to support in helping organ- local organizations in in identifying those issues and and um, giving voice to their concerns also in the international community and providing them with a platform where they can can speak and and it's up to the international community and states to to support those um, those cries for help to address those issues.
0: Sure. Sure. Um, before we were speaking about this thing with Iran basically setting fires by trying to chase the PKK out of the mountains.
1: Yeah, so they, um, the last summer there were huge outbreaks of uh, wildfires in um, northeast Iraq, um, west Iran and southern Turkey. So along in the borderlands between Turkey and Iraq and Iran, um, you have the PKK in the Kandil Mountains, and you have the Iranian armed opposition, Kurdish armed opposition, uh, at the in the uh, also in the Kandil Mountains next to the PKK, and they you know um, that's why they that's uh, where they organize themselves, and, um, and that's being um, they're being targeted by um, the Iranians and by the by the Turks um, on a regular basis. So last summer it was a very dry summer so the um the turkish military but also iranian um uh, iranian border uh, forces were you know uh, striking those campsites or suspected militants in those areas uh, and of course because it's, it's it's it is very dry it's a mountainous area so there was a lot of wildfires destroying um like forestry and woodlands and also encroaching on villages and people had to flee and people were environmentalists who were fighting the wildfires were also died in the fires um and it, it's it was i think the biggest this summer it happened before where it's also likely been used as deliberate tactic so we heard from uh, at least it was reported in iran that you know iranian snipers using uh, um tracer rounds be, to set the area on fire because you know it's very dry and with the tracer round it's uh, it makes it uh, also like a tinderbox there um so it's the story is also like the local communities uh orchards um people are drifting out of their villages um and it's it was a big issue there as well um where you use the environment as a sort of weapon to attack armed groups um so that's just one of the many examples but it, it could also be the other way around so for example in colombia uh, um during the um the, the FARC uh, era, um, it wasn't uh, possible for uh, logging companies to to chop down the woods because of the presence of the FARC in those areas or other um, um, paramilitary groups. Um, and I think the uh, ELZN, is that the one in, uh, in Colombia?
0: Um, no, that's in um, Mexico.
1: That's Mexico, yeah. There's, not, either there's another... Um, a left-wing group at next to the uh, sides FARC in in Colombia
0: the FLN
1: yeah FLN so um, after the peace accord uh, in a couple of years ago um, it provided also an opportunity for logging companies to to also chop down the forest there so there was a massive increase of deforestation taking place uh, after the conflict because the conflict sort of prevented uh, the forest from being cut down. Um, so that's another, you know, it can also be the other way around, but you also see in, in Somalia where Al-Shabaab is using, it's cutting down forests because they use charcoal, uh, charcoal trade for, um, for income generation to to fund their uh, armed group. In Idlib, which is, we haven't confirmed it yet, but like there has been massive deforestation as well by um, armed groups who use charcoal for uh, income generation and char- the charcoal trade. Um, so, but also you have issues around even on, on, on peacetime with military activities. So in the US, for example, there are like 39,000 contaminated military sites, um, from military pollutants, from, you know, firing ranges, um, chemicals being used as, uh, in, in fire extinguishers on massive scale and local communities as well. Like the, the drinking water was affected. People were getting sick and people were being exposed to military toxics. So, um. There are a lot of questions there around as well, around military responsibility for, for pollution and damage and people actually getting sick from, from being exposed to
0: that. Uh, to be honest, I'm really personally very interested in environmental issues, but I'm very cynical, you know, when this kind of, oh, let's stop having straws in Europe, I thought, yeah, way too late. And now talking to you about this Again, I just think surely it's way too late to actually fix any of this. Like we, we've destroyed everything way too much already, no? Like it's going to take a radical, radical difference, it feels.
1: Well, you know, we can't change the past anymore, but we can influence the future. So uh, the best thing we can do is for, uh, to look at the past and see what we can fix there uh on the damage that's being done and what we can do is prevent it more damages will be done in the near future so in the way what we're trying to do is to address those issues put this on the agenda of of armed forces and there's, there's a growing understanding also among the militaries that uh, what the limitations are and what kind of limitations should put in place but also for reconstruction to focus on the environment because it's in everyone's interest to um to prevent unnecessary damage um and let's be let's be honest like we can't stop wars that's not going to happen like you know there won't be a peaceful future and wars will always happen What we can do is trying to make sure uh, if if those are being fought then uh, you know don't that civilians and their livelihoods are not being affected and um and we have to engage with those who are open to that kind of message like, i can't stop you know just like the the law won't stop a criminal from, from stealing something or from killing someone. It does stop a lot of other people for or it has a preventive um, effect on many other people do that kind of stuff. So that's the same with international regulation as well. We can address those issues, put it on the agenda um, and at least trying to make sure if something bad happens that now there will be, you know, money is being made available to quickly uh, remediate contaminated sites to make sure um, people are not being exposed to, or civilians are not being exposed to hazardous substances, or that money is being, uh, or expertise is being put into um, re- remediation of damaged environmental sites, or environmental infrastructure is being fixed in a, in a rapid pace, so, you know, in the long term, it doesn't have a, a, a big impact on on health and, and the, uh, the socio-economic opportunities for, for for societies recovering from armed conflict. So that's sort of the least you can do, you know. Yeah. I always feel like, um, you know, I can't change the future to, to something better, but, you know, we, we have to take the responsibilities that we have and what we can do and try to act accordingly to those responsibilities to to make things better and not, not give up, basically. Because then the other side has already won and uh, that's a matter of principle that I don't want to accept. In the last couple of years we also have been working with humanitarian agencies and UN agencies to improve response to um, to environmental damage that occurred in conflict by collecting data uh, on damage to industrial sites, damage to environmental sensitive sites and trying to find a method in Um, data collection and uh, identification and monitoring of conflict pollution and environmental damage. So this data is being collected and shared among humanitarian agencies in conflict areas, so they know what they come across, and they also know they will know how to deal with this um, and um, incorporate those environmental dimensions in the humanitarian response planning. So that's one area where significant progress has been made and that should lead to hopefully um, minimizing health risk for civilians in conflicts. And next, um, because this data is then made available, uh, it can also be helpful in post-conflict reconstruction for um, relevant local or national authorities to, to look at where environmental hotspots are um, and um, you know include that in the reconstruction work and cleanup work so um, local communities don't have to deal with the impact of the conflict uh, on their local environment. So that's on the practical side and on the policy side there also have been um, an increasing number of uh, really interesting debates um, uh, within the UN. Um, So for example the United Nations Environmental Assembly has two resolutions and one in 2016 on protection of the environment in areas affected by armed conflict and in 2017 they had a resolution on mitigating uh, risk from conflict pollution and those kind of resolutions have both been very helpful in the sense that the first resolution on protection of the environment also um, gave an enormous boost to the legal process um, in the UN, so there has been a debate in the UN on legal protection of the environment uh, in times of armed conflict. So the International Law Committee has set up, um, have been working over the last eight years um, on on discussing draft principles on improving protection of the environment in armed conflict. And this resolution was very helpful in that. And the other resolution on conflict pollution resulted in support to the Iraqi government in um, training local um, um employees or um, employees from the ministry of environment on on um, detecting pollution in areas that were affected by isis um, so there was a massive oil pollution in Gayara in iraq where 19 oil wells have been put on fire and um, those wells were burning for like eight months and like there was a lot of like smoke pollution and um um crude oil spills and, and in in the nearby area and of course people living there and and idp camps that were living and uh, were nearby those um, burning oil wells they, they were living under the black clouds from from that smoke um there was a uh, sulfur factory being put on fire and within a couple of days there was a massive release of sulfur dioxide um around 20 people were killed um, by the toxic clouds and around 1,000 people were hospitalized, hospitalized with um, breathing problems. So that also needed to be addressed and there was a range of other um, oil pollution sites. And um, the, your resolution that came out of uh, the, that debate in the United Nations also resulted in financial support and expertise support to the Iraqi government to to deal with this with this issue, so those are like two concrete outcomes where um, advocacy work and giving voice to and, and and providing an overview of what's happening on on the ground and how environmental damage and conflict affects uh, the environment, how it also boosted an international process, and I think that's something that we need to do more to look at those stories and and listen to those stories because they they need to be heard and the 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 situations on the ground need to be uh, visualized because that brings also with it a strong image on making it more concrete for uh, viewers or readers and for experts and policymakers on how environmental uh, pollution does have direct or long term impacts on communities. And advocacy work is helpful in that regard because it can bring those voices from affected communities to uh, a larger stage within the UN. and um, and it's up then to states to to find an adequate answer to this um, emerging uh, threat that will only become um, a much more bigger issue in the future
0: absolutely yeah true we've at least got to try i could talk to you about this all day but i know you've got to go Uh, where can people get hold of your work where can they follow what you're doing i think it's really important work um, and i think people should know more about it
1: so um, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks uh, at least also for for having us and talk about this. I think it's also uh, an important issue that journalists uh, and other people are uh, should be more aware of and, and and using their work. And if you want to learn more about this, you can also always visit our website uh, www. Nl. Um, we're also doing a lot of publications on using open source information on environmental. Uh, damage and conflicts on com, and pax is also a member of the uh, toxic remnants of war network which is www.trwn.org where you also find a, a wealth of information on all the different uh, dimensions of environmental damage and armed conflict um, and feel free to drop me a line or you can follow me on twitter at uh, at womas w uh, a w m e double the set um, yeah and thanks again for, for, for paying attention uh, to this issue uh, Jake and uh, much appreciate much appreciate it
0: I'm glad someone's doing something about it so that was Wim Zwischenberg talking about the many ways that war kills the environment and how you don't really ever find out about that uh, until it's too late years after the war often if you like what we're doing here at Popular Front please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash popularfront. We are grassroots independent all the way, so that's the only real way we kind of get moving. So yeah, consider supporting us on the Patreon or with a one-time donation or Bitcoin, whatever, go to popularfront.co slash support. You'll find out how to do that there. Uh, please do forgive my voice, I sound like I've been absolutely caning it. I haven't, I'm just done well. Uh, this episode is sponsored by TheDefensePost.com Defence with an S. Go to them for your regular updates on the world in conflict. If you want to watch Popular Front documentaries, go to YouTube.com slash Popular Front. Subscribe, hit the bell, all of that. We've got a lot of video content coming soon. Um, You'll see the new uh, Ukraine Anarchist doc is either out now or will be out very shortly after this episode. Follow us on Instagram, that's instagram.com slash popular.front. Or follow us on Twitter, that's twitter.com slash popularfrontco. Or follow me, that's at Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N thank you very much to the following people without you this would not be possible those people are Darby Adam Bergschneider Axel Iverson Chad Walker Dan Dunham Daniel Shearer Diana Gorvenek Elizabeth Benicki Emily Molly Fletcher Tate James from the Discord Joanne Stocker Joel Tambusi Kyle Payne Lawrence Abrahams LH, Margaret Bowling, Michael Euler, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormack from What Bitcoin Did, Russia Al Akidi, Ryan Sandercock, Skartu Music, Scott Jonesy, Sebastian from the Discord, Suruse Hawazi, Teddy, Tom Lochrin, Tony Bin, Vida Provost, Zachary Hinch, and Anthony Kabarek. Thank you very, very much you want to support you want the bonus episode discord all of that stuff go to patreon.com slash popular front music in this episode the intro was by home and the outro was by cramped skunkman go to his band camp that's cramped skunkman.bandcamp.com check his music out